another great trope too for your fantasy uh protagonist is the i don't want it yeah trope, right <laughs> it's just constantly like yeah he's like i don't I'm want not a lord he doesn't want to be a lord yeah. he doesn't want to be a they legend want, they try and call him a prince or something and he's like i'm not a prince and they're like all right lord and he's like i guess i'll settle for that we'll compromise <laughs> Welcome, friends, to episode 284 of the Ink to Film podcast, where we read the book and then see the movie. I'm writer Luke Elliott. And I'm filmmaker James Bailey. And this week, we discuss the first half of Robert Jordan's 1990 novel, The Great Hunt. We are back in the series Wheel of Time. Uh, it's been around two years. I was looking uh, since we last covered this. We did, I think, five episodes, three on the first book, two on the show, it was a lot of coverage, but it's been a little while. So I'm curious, like, where are you at with this series, James? Have you thought about it much since we read it? And uh, how excited are you to get back into it? It's the kind of fantasy that I found myself going to when I was younger. And I, I veered away from it for a long time. And reading Eye of the World for the podcast kind of pulled me back in because I, I was aware of Robert Jordan's Wheel of Time series and how momentous that was for for that era we have some some authors these days that are like massive you know you have your george r r martins and and your brandon sanderson's and things like that those those authors are like these sort of beacons in fantasy and and getting a chance to read it for the podcast was so much fun for me that i was like man i really want to go read more fantasy and mm. specifically that style of fantasy that that kind of like epic epic fantasy yeah um so i went and read a lot more and but because I remember talking to you about it, I was like, I'd love to continue the series. And you're like, well, specifically, you, you went and read Sanderson. Yeah, Sanderson. Yeah. <laughs> and because I like I was like, OK, well, Sanderson finishes the the Wheel of Time and I've heard great things about his work. And then I read like all of Sanderson, <laughs> I read like all the entire Cosmere <laughs> since in really? the last two years. Yeah. This is kind of what set me on that path. And, and it, like it's got yeah. me back into epic fantasy. And, uh, well, and Sanderson this, has said as much, but clearly a big influence on him was Robert Jordan. It, he oh, talked massive. about how you yeah. know reading this these books was super inspirational for him. It was he thought it was like some of the best stuff he'd ever read. Yeah, it, to to our listeners, if you haven't heard the story, Robert Jordan unfortunately passed away and wasn't able to yeah. finish his series. We talk and, about that in our second episode on the book. By the way, I went back and listened to a little bit of our coverage. Um, we didn't get to that in the first episode because there was so much to cover with just the book itself. Yeah, but the second episode we did on it. Uh, we talk about that and, and we talk about Brandon Sanderson's like uh, eulogy he wrote. I recommend that if you haven't heard it, if you are curious about that. Yeah, it's incredible because uh, Robert Jordan's widow was his editor as well. And so she was very involved with handpicking the person who would finish the series based on his manuscripts. It's amazing stuff. And um, so this is just a series that I've really wanted to add to my knowledge of fantasy and just just, you know, genre nerdy stuff that I love. Uh, so I didn't do it for this podcast, hopefully so that I'm going in <laughs> kind of blind still with Wheel of Time. And it's this massive series that I know has a really big following. So I, I can't tell you how excited I am to continue on. And, uh, you know, this first half has been it's been interesting because there's a lot of expectations, right? Yeah, I've talked a lot about my history with this series, how it was a foundational one for me that I read uh, probably late 90s, early 2000s, um, you know, and, and 
up to a certain point, I was following along with it basically until Robert Jordan passed away. It, it always reminds me of a specific time. Like I remember reading like this book we're reading now. I think I was in eighth grade when I read it. You know what I mean? So like it takes me back immediately. You know, I, and I wanted to ask you this too. I know that I've heard other authors speak about like the idea of YA. Now this isn't YA because of some of like the brutality in it, but some of yeah. the interpersonal connections and some of the things that characters are motivated by feel pretty YA uh, yeah. some of the time. And it's I'm curious, still, like, it's still in a very YA mode at this point. Yeah. Does that kind of shift, I assume, as time goes on? Yeah, I, I would say so. Um, these characters start out basically in their teens. I, I don't know that we get specific ages, and maybe we did and I've just forgotten them, but they feel very much like teenagers, right? Um, and this is a 14-book, I think, series. Yeah, they age over time. Um, yeah. And as they age, they grow into adults and they begin beha behaving more like adults. Um, and so I think the, the series does start to grow up. Um, and, and, you know, it's not always I, 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 like there is an appeal to the young protagonist. So I do think people look at these early books with a fondness for that reason, too, because because our characters are so new, they're the first time out of two rivers. Everything's this, you know, exciting experience. And they're so bumbling and awkward That's what I was gonna at say. times. And like, there's they're... an appeal to that that I think draws people to YA. Um, and then I don't know what the rules. I mean, there aren't any rules as far as I know about like what is and what isn't OK in a YA novel. Um, the brutality and stuff you, t you mentioned in here. I'm sure there are YA novels that have equal stuff like this. Um, oh, yeah, I there's, guess that's there's true. There's YA yeah. novels. There's a whole discourse right now going on about YA novels and like how explicit the sex scenes can be in them. Mm -hmm. um, because well, I'm it's, curious. It's, to... There's no rule about it. It's just all marketing. It's like, do you want to market to teenagers or not? And then even when you're doing that, are you actually marketing to like younger women who are maybe not in that teenage demographic, but still really love that YA or or men? But it's a lot of younger women really are drawn to YA. So are you actually marketing to them and not teenagers? There's like a whole discourse about that, right? Yeah. Now. Well, I've heard like on the on the marketing side too, there's weird, especially historically weird stuff with like, if a woman wrote a series oh, yeah. like this, it would be probably considered YA. That too, uh, from from outside perspectives, from in within the industry perspectives, people look at women writing younger characters and immediately label it as YA. Yeah. Whereas someone like Martin, can write Game of Thrones, have a bunch of children as the protagonist for the most part, and not ever, you know, be at risk of being called YA. So yeah, those are all those are all debates to have. Um, but a little bit beyond the scope of what we're talking about here, other than Robert Jordan's books, like they continue to kind of be like straddle that that line. Um, even this book gets released in two volumes eventually, like later on. And I we talked about how they did a similar thing through Eye of the World. And they tried to market it more towards that younger audience when they re-released it later. Um, this book does come out in 1990, but later in 2004, it gets split into two separate books called The Hunt Begins and New Threads in the Pattern. I think that might have been along that same trend of trying to like market it to younger audiences with like books that aren't quite so uh, intimidating in their length. I think Jordan did some interesting things here with like sort of what you do with a sequel, right? You're rehashing enough to have it feel familiar, kind of mm -hmm. start up. Uh, yeah, action. he always does that. Like, get used to that as you go forward. There's always a little bit in the first like hundred pages or so, where characters are literally recapping, like yeah. what has happened so far, where they're at mentally, what the current like struggle is, and they'll even like reintroduce characters and he'll describe them in the same ways he described them in the last book. Um, yeah, yeah. What are your thoughts on that? Because 
I think that that is a little bit divisive. I think in a book, in a series this big, I do think people kind of appreciate the like help, but it does also kind of pad it out a, in a way, right? And like add to that already huge word count. I felt like we didn't really jump into the adventure proper. Now, I think some of the stuff that was in this first season of the show, they took from the beginning of this. So I was already somewhat aware of it, but I feel like we didn't jump into the hunt per se for like a third of the book. Season one already got a little bit into this book. Mm-hmm. This is a good way to talk about how we're gonna, <laughs> we're going to approach this thing, and and f- as far as we know, what we've heard this second season of the show actually goes into book three a pretty significant amount. But we're not going to read book three right now. But I would say our plan would be if this show gets renewed and we are going to get a, se- a third season, which I hope we do, and it looks like something we want to cover at some point. We'll probably will squeeze in a book three coverage, um, whether it's just like a standalone at some point. We'll do we'll do a couple episodes on it. And then later we'll jump into because I assume by then we'll be on to like book four or five. Who knows um, for for a third season? We'll just have to kind of keep our eyes on it. But um, for now, we're going to be covering some stuff here that already happened. And then there's going to be some stuff in the show that is that we haven't got to yet. And it will technically be book spoilers. But that's just kind of the way it's, it's panning out for us. We, we talked about the characters some just to get into some of my general thoughts here with this book. Um, yeah. Expectations were high. I think like. The first book was introducing the characters. There wasn't a lot more that you can do than go on one kind of linear adventure. There are like multiple, multiple, obviously continuing plot lines that are happening simultaneously, that kind of stuff. I just mean mm-hmm. like this already feels like it's starting to to expand on the world a lot. We're getting a lot more of the Aes Sedai fairly early on. He introduced a, a mechanic in a world that I that a 14 book series. I would have ex- assumed the mechanic would be introduced like book eight or nine. <laughs> The, the way that this is starting to to complicate and add so many characters, it, it feels like he's doing yeah. familiar things and starting up an adventure. And then at the same time saying, OK, now we get to take a real step into this world that I've designed. And you can just feel that even still we're sort of in this in the startup of what the story could be. This is like starting to lay the groundwork for what real time books are going to look like going forward. And you can see how he starts bringing in all sorts of new characters every time. And how over the course of 14 books, if he's doing that with every book, which he does. Yeah. The sprawl of this, the number of named characters that he asks you to remember and the number of locations, the number of like it gets really, truly huge. Yeah. And if you're really good at that and like some people are awesome at it and they hold it all in their heads and like, you know, they, they really live in it. And it's I think it helps if it's like you don't read a lot of other stuff and it's like this is the main thing that you put a lot of your imagination into and like your memory when it comes to that stuff. Um, But I think like I've read a million, like not a million, but I've read a lot of books since I read these series and going back now I'm getting refreshers, but like still I'm like, I struggle to remember all these names, all these places. And you know, so I'll get some of that stuff wrong. I'm just not someone who has like a really good mind for lore and like, you know, names, especially like I lose them a lot. Yeah, I tend to be pretty good at it, but it I, it takes a really like I'll tell you my process for reading this and I and shout out, by the way, to people who run wiki pages out there, man, like they're dangerous for spoilers. But if you yeah. use them correctly and you kind of know where, what you're doing, you can avoid that kind of stuff. You can look at like timeline paths, mm-hmm. or, like interactive maps and things like that. Those I, I like that kind of stuff because it helps yeah. me really sink my teeth in. So I find Robert Jordan to be like a really interesting figure in fantasy. But as there's a lot of book to cover and in our in our I have the world coverage. We did do a deep dive on him and his his legacy and, and all that kind of stuff. I want to point people back to that first book's coverage. And just so it's clear how we're going to cover this, the first half of the book is what we're doing today. 
Then we're going to do the first four episodes of season two all together next week. We'll come back, finish book two, and then we'll return to the show, finish out the season. So we do kind of a back and forth thing. That's what you can look for over the next month. But let's move into the plot now. In the prologue, Balzaman presides over a clandestine meeting. In addition to Forsaken and Dark Friends, the meeting includes two Aes Sedai. The book then opens with major characters united at the city fortress of Faldara in Shinar, where the Amarellan seat is traveling to. Shortly after her arrival, the fortress at Faldara is attacked by Trollocs and Mirdral. The evil, twisted prisoner, Padden Fane, takes Matt's mysterious and powerful but tainted dagger, without which he would slowly die, as well as the Horn of Valir. In the wake of the attack, Rand has an audience with the Amarillan seat and is told that he is the Dragon Reborn. As we've talked about, some of this is already in the first season. Like, they kind of did all this at the, right at the end here. We got through Pat and Fane, I think, already escaped with a dagger in the show. It's been a little while, but my memory is that some of this stuff has already happened. Yeah, I'm, I think I'm going to do a rewatch of the show, by the way, the first season, maybe <laughs> yeah. this week leading up to, to part of season two, because I can't remember exactly what was in what. But I do remember, like, Moiraine and the Amarillan seat yeah. met and then they had like a more intimate relationship, which I thought was cool in the show. Yeah, totally. And um, here in the book, uh, you know, I focus on this. It is interesting that like this is the first time I think Rand has met any other Aes Sedai. And I was like, oh, wow, because like we've met a ton of them in the show. right? Yeah, yeah totally. <laughs> and, and a lot of them have been around. But um, this is actually the first time where he's doing that. He's very scared of the Amarillan. He wants to run, run away. Like, he spends the whole first part of the book kind of running around, but um, even before that, we get this prologue, which I definitely wanted to get your thoughts on. So I think this has, this serves an interesting function in this book. Mm -hmm. um, but this prologue where like everyone's wearing masks and they're <laughs> yeah, at a yeah. secret party. There's all these people and you get little hints at like who they might actually be. It seems like there's a lot of like important people, rich yeah. people. Um, but then there's like people from all different walks of life. There's like a person from the uh, Tinkers is there. There's someone from like across the sea. There's two Aes Sedai in, among the numbers there. And the implication is that all these people are dark friends and they're getting their sort of marching orders from Balzaman, who shows up with this mask on. You can see fire behind the eyes and starts giving all these um, individualized directions that like everybody else isn't privy to. Mm -hmm. So they all have their like own marching orders, but they don't know what the other people's are. What was your thoughts on this uh, opening and how, how do you think it affects the rest of the book going forward? Yeah, the paranoia, just paranoia yeah. throughout. I'm constantly like, oh, man, dark friend, dark friend, yeah. dark friend. Everyone's like, a dark friend. Who were those people? Like, oh, wasn't yeah. there someone who looked like they were from this place? You know what I mean? Like he, he did a really good job with that. It, it, it instills a lot of paranoia. Yeah, paranoia everywhere. If you pick it up right from where book one ends, Rand and company fought uh at the eye of the world and they yep. like there's these forsaken people and they you think that they've been defeated two two yep. of the 13 or whatever have been defeated and then you're you're throughout thinking okay like these seals are breaking these seals are important in terms of like holding the dark one back yeah these we keep bringing about the seals up. hold the forsaken bound in i think shaogul and like they they're weakening maybe breaking and mm -hmm. people you know maybe they're starting to get out the yeah. So I'm constantly like, is that another Forsaken? Is that a dark friend? Is this person who they say they are? And then right. the other the other layer to this, the other wrinkle is that we know that there's Aes Sedai or Aes Sedai, Aes Sedai, does it matter? Is it pretty similar? I've <laughs> given up on consistent pronunciation. Even listening back to our coverage, we, print, we pronounce things differently because I think we, as soon as we watch the show, the show's pronunciation starts to get to us. But the audiobook, which I know we both listen to at times, 
it has its own pronunciation. And then I have my pronunciation that I grew up with. So yeah. all of these things are just a big mess for me right now. <laughs> and I'm just going to, I've given up trying to be consistent with it. Yeah. All right. So Aes Sedai, there's two, at least two at this party. And that leads me to, and then we hear about these Black Aja. Yeah. And, and so Any theories about like, who these two are? Yes. Early theories? It's obvious to me. Okay. <laughs> who, who, who are uh, they? So, so one of them is obvious. One is the the um, red Aja that's like constantly like interrogating people and like they're fre freaking out about Rand and and uh, the three. They can affect the 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 pattern. What's the Taravan or something like that? Tar Tar Tarviran. She's like constantly Whatever. asking yeah. about those guys, and uh, so yeah. she she feels like she's definitely one. And then there's multiple other Leandrin. Is that who you're talking about? Yeah, Leandrin. Leandrin. I yeah, I have a, I have a list of characters because I'm again not great with the names. I think that's who you're talking about. She's, yeah, Leandrin. She's definitely she's the one who's got the kind of petulant look, and she um she kind of like almost tortures somebody at one point when she's questioning them, and she can yeah. like compel them to like want to answer her with like this needle thing that she does. Um, seems evil to me. I don't know. She's, she's... definitely evil. Yeah. So the question is, if someone seems evil, does that mean they're a dark friend or are there evil people who can be shitty who aren't actually dark friends? It's a great question. Like we don't I said, know yet, right? it, it, she could be a red herring and in, in as a red Aja. So that's, yeah, I mean, she know, could just be shitty, but like, does that mean she's a dark friend? I don't know. Yeah. She she seems like she's a, a prime candidate. Uh, the, and then like there's the one that's like inquisitive and sketchy that's uh, currently with Perrin. Talking about Varen. Varen, the, yeah. the brown. And Who also seems to have kind of guessed what's going on with Damarillon, mm -hmm. um, Seat and and Mor Moraine, who they have this like close friendship in the book that, as you said in the show, is portrayed as romantic. Um, but I think is is regardless a very interesting kind of secret relationship they, they have secret plotting they're doing that the rest of the ace that i don't know about mm -hmm. because they know about this prophecy right that's to do with the dragon reborn and they want to like shepherd the dragon reborn and make sure that he's around to be able to fight the dark one because they see him as important but they're worried because they're like all the other ace today are going to see him as a false dragon and are going to want to get him gentled um before he can you know become what he needs to become protect himself and or whatever varin yeah. sees through all of this and kind of calls them out on it Again, this could be a red herring. She she just uh, has like a, a sly smile and like a knowing look that that maybe because mm -hmm. she can like suss these things out and she's very inquisitive and, and like um, wants to just wants all the knowledge supposedly like that's that's like what that Aja is interested in, I believe. And so that's like part of her personality. But then at the same time, there's always like a, a knowing look or a this or that. that yeah. That makes me think. But then they've introduced here, uh, uh, here at the end. There's another character that I'm convinced might be an Aja, which is the one who's like with Rand right now and like seducing Rand. But that's much later in this. That's about nearing. The You're saying point. convinced might be a dark friend. Um, yeah, yeah well, we'll no, circle back a, to that. Might be a, a secret black Aja or something. But yeah, because like yeah. within the uh, sisters of uh, Tarvalon, the Sedai forgot their name for a second yeah we hear that there is another aja that no one talks about the black aja and you're not allowed to like you're not supposed to mention this to them because it's supposed to be like a very taboo subject um but we've seen two at this meeting which implies that maybe this is a real thing and there is this like secret other group within there so we yeah. we got in deep here but just to talk about like the the start of the story how it's like yeah. sort of propelling itself forward it's cool because we quickly learn about this horn 
and it's it's important because it can call the troops of the dead or something like yeah, that. Yeah, so I was wondering and, what your what your thoughts are on this horn and like what import it seems to play here. I mean, it seems like the like the eye of the actually you know the first book is the eye of the world. That's the mm -hmm. important magical item, magical location. I think that's this for that, and the great hunt yeah. is about um, this this horn. And I'm interested to see like who that that horn's getting blown. There's no mm -hmm. no, no question in my mind that horn. Just who's <laughs> gonna blow it. Mm -hmm. um and then we get you know it keeps getting taken back and forth between the evil people and then so sort so, you know rand's people and in, in moraine in in some ways right um i think the idea of that the idea of having some some powerful force that can come from the dead to help you fight is pretty awesome for a magical item like that that's just awesome so we start also with uh lan and rand are like training mm -hmm. like training with, with these like practice swords we get that wind come blowing in again. And a lot of these books start with this wind. Um, and this one like physically hits Rand and like not almost like knocks him over. Yeah. yeah he describes and, it as a wall. Um, and lands like, oh, weird stuff happens when you're when you're this close to the to the blight. And then like, yeah, I, I wanted to know what your thoughts are as we rejoin these characters. We re rejoin Lan, who's taken definitely like seems like he has a fondness for Rand here. He's taken him under his wing a little bit. Mm -hmm. There's a part where he's going to meet Amarillin and um, Lan like preps him. What do you mm -hmm. think of all that? Interestingly, the the chapter that just happened to be halfway through the book ended off on some some stuff that was talking about this and this idea of like Lan's motivations possibly being like slightly shifted because originally he didn't care about these children, these people from this you know valley town or mountain mm -hmm. town, whatever it is, um, and it seems that through his somewhat romantic or they maybe they're just crushes i can't remember how far it's gone in this in the book series so far but they, they're definitely a couple like in the future in my opinion and naive and, and you're talking about Long, naive yeah yeah her influence on him and him kind of get more invested in these people in general brings back the idea of the terra teravine or something what is, whatever that Taviren. word is Taviren. brings back that idea that like these people can like they kind of pull people into their cause so I thought it was interesting. And then and then Maureen even says as much in at the you know, that last chapter in this half, she says something about like whether you help them because your allegiance is slightly shifting towards Nynaeve, or if it's because they're Taviran and they're kind of pulling you into their their orbit. Um, I think that's what's going on here. Yeah. I'm I'm still not I'm pretty sure that the three main dudes, Rand Perrin and Matt, are the three Taviran in the they books. Are. Yeah. And in the show, they expanded it out. Oh, yeah, and that's Egwene right. and Nynaeve as well, I believe, are also yeah. Taviran. So that's like a slight difference. But it's it's interesting because I feel like Robert Jordan treats them as if they are. Also they definitely Taviran. feel like they are. Yeah. So they're they're like the most powerful. That's we keep hearing about how powerful they both are. And, them and, and one other. Like, uh, it's like I think latent it's power. The, the princess that that uh, Rand meets in the first book. Is yes. Also and Camelin. Yeah. Elaine. Elaine Tricond. Um she is also said to be very powerful. She's like the one other one they've mentioned. Um, but we haven't seen her yet in this book at all. Um, no. So so that's just kind of a, yeah, leftover from last book. We hear yeah. about the Heron Marked Blade here. And Lan actually talks a little bit about these swords, these Blade Master swords. And for the first time we hear that this was actually Tam's sword. And he was a Blade Master. Mm-hmm. So what were your thoughts on these reveals and, and the swords yeah. that are, they say that you never have to sharpen them, things like that? Yeah, I mean, very cool. Also very um, tropey a little bit, which I love yeah. <laughs> about this genre. Like hey. it's like 
Uh, it's part of we it's love one of the we love a I magic love. sword and fantasy, right? Sure, yeah. and, and a mentor, like adoptive father that died to protect you and give you motivation, and now you have a, a, a you know a piece of him that's always with you, and it just so happens to be an incredibly powerful magical artifact. Is awesome, cool. Yeah, I'm on board. There's a lot of angst about whether or not he's really Rand's father, and he's like, oh, yeah. he is my father, and I'm not an ailment, and. Um, he keeps saying, I will not be controlled. It's like a repeated refrain. He keeps saying to himself. And... Oh, that brings up a great point too, is like these, the characters, like you said, they're, they're very angsty and yeah. they make really dumb decisions, which like, you know, is good for long-term character growth because you get to show the characters kind of bumbling, like we've said, um, man, they make some dumb decisions and, and just like rash decisions. And which ones are standing out to you? <laughs> Rand for sure. <laughs> uh definitely rand matt obviously no has, what, like, what what decision oh gosh i mean just constantly running off into battle or being swayed by this person to to do a something yeah. when they're not like, questioning oh. just being like yeah. oh yeah and then just rand throughout is yeah like you said it's just constantly like i will not be told what to do by anyone yeah he's very like no one tells me what to do yeah. i do what i want um he uh even if they're like clearly speaking from a place of wisdom that he doesn't have. He's just like, no, I will not do it. He gets very stubborn, um, sure. which people call him out on. There's a part where he does something that is also very tropey, but it, it, to me, it always, this is a trope that always works for me in the sense that it creates drama as long as it's not overdone. And that's when he is like mean to Perrin and Matt just so that they won't want to go with him. Because yeah. he's like, I need to go off on my own, and there it's too dangerous for them to go with me. So I'm going to be a dick to them both. And then all now all the characters are mad at each other, and you know that he was like faking it, but like Perrin and Matt are angry at him, and it drags on for a little while. But then it seems like they're starting to. They, they, they eventually it's revealed that like, no, nah, I was doing that to push you guys away. So it doesn't go on for too long because that's when I think it can start to wear thin. But like mm -hmm. this trope always works on me. It's it's uh it creates some real dramatic tension. I like it. I also feel like it's it's a almost a hallmark of of YA again. It's to pit the characters against each other, yeah. but it's not super nuanced. It's in and kind I don't of it's kind that. of a shallow way because like Rand basically is like I I am like too good for you guys now. You're you're dragging me down. You're making me look bad. I'm all high and mighty, and they start calling him Lord Rand. There's this repeated thing where like everybody's starting to call him a lord now. Um, apparently just cause he like dresses better, but also just kind of like carries himself like a Lord. I mean, another great trope too, for your fantasy, uh, protagonist is the, I don't want it. Yeah. Trope, right. <laughs> it's just constantly like, yeah, he's like, I don't I'm want not a Lord. He doesn't want to be a Lord. Yeah. He doesn't want to be a they legend. Want, they try and call him a prince or something. And he's like, I'm not a prince. And they're like, all right, Lord. And he's like, I guess I'll settle for that. We'll compromise. <laughs> he doesn't want powers. He doesn't want to be the dragon. He doesn't want to be a legend that's talked about for generations and stuff. He doesn't want any of it. And that reluctant sure. hero is always going to be fun to to start out i mean what's the alternative of... the guy who's just like hell yeah this is what i'm all about <laughs> yeah yeah i think that's what most people reading the books would you do. don't see that as often i guess but uh yeah, yeah maybe that would be interesting just for a change <laughs> yeah i feel like matt might be a little bit like that if he was actually the dragon reborn i don't know unclear yeah. it was funny too when in the first book like they de he, he, jordan went out of his way to be like who is the dragon reborn which of the mm -hmm. three boys and then it's like this book it's like he's the dragon reborn and a lot of people know it and people <laughs> yeah. are people are being doled out this information like some of yeah. our main characters which is it's always fun to see those reveals actually a good moment of that tension that you're talking about between matt Perrin, and and rand was when he then revealed and they were like oh my god we're sorry you have so much going on and you know it makes a lot of sense like how you were acting and that kind of thing 
I, yeah. I thought that was a nice comeback around because they were like, look at him. He has this, he has the flag. He wants to be the Dragon Reborn. He's like, right. no, I don't want look it. Look at his coat that... he's wearing that like ran, like Land brought for him. Yeah, and Moraine is like, I don't know. Lawn, yeah. <laughs> Moraine keeps setting him up for this kind of stuff too. She's... He's got Chekhov's dragon banner and <laughs> in his like saddlebag now. Lindsay throwing you... that thing up, yeah. <laughs> yeah, uh, it seems important. <laughs> it does seem important. I, and I, I think I'm pretty certain that was like in, in the eye of the world when it dried up, right? Like that and the horn. Yeah, I think you're right. That's a good, yeah, I had forgotten that, but I think you're right now that you say that. So, you know, magical items, I'm sure. <laughs> but, yeah. but, uh, well, whether or not it's magical, right? Like you use a banner, like people, the, there's a lot of talk about people raising their banners sure. um, in, in a lot of fantasy, but it's in here too. And like, mm -hmm. that's like a call to like, hey, I'm, I'm raising an army mm -hmm. and you're going to, and if you want to come fight for me, you're going to like follow this banner. Yeah. So it's the, another great indicator. It's the banner of the dragon. Like literally yeah. that would be like a, hey, I'm, I'm. I'm going to start some the dragon reborn, <laughs> which is a good another good um, thing to talk about here, which is a lot of characters are learning that he's the dragon, but like the public doesn't know that he's the dragon reborn. And you can feel like this is still still signaling like this is the beginning of the story. Eventually, everyone will know he's the dragon and the sort of things that he has to deal with as like public knowledge. He's the dragon reborn and people are gunning for him. And, yeah. you know, dark friends are all over the place. He's everywhere he goes at some point, I assume, in the story. He's going to be a target. So what did you think about his relationship with some of our different characters here early? Like there's a there's an interesting interaction between him and Egwene where she is like um, she's been going to see Pat and Fane in the in the dungeon. This is right before all the shit goes down. But they like run into each other. Yeah. And they're like wrestling. <laughs> and then uh, there's like magic and stuff. And, and yeah, they're playing up. There's some like attraction, sexual tension here. They keep talking about they're both were like supposed to be uh, destined to marry each other. I think that just through these first two books and maybe, you know, the story could take tons of twists and turns along the way and, to, and surprise me. But the fandom wants Egwene is how I say it. Uh, I'm not sure if that's. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, maybe it is Egwene. Yeah. I always said Egwene growing up, but it's probably Egwene. She and, and Rand will end up together, I think, long term, whether there's other people that he's with along the way, that Egwene is with along the way. Like, I think ultimately they're they've talked about like they're destined to be other together. They were always meant to marry. And like okay. their 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 sort of paths keep pulling them apart, which is sort of, you know, romantic in, in a sense. And yeah. I like how how it's set up and how I like their relationship. It feels real. It feels if you endearing. had to give a percentage surety where are you at with it You're that how, up, how you sure you are that they're going to end up together at the by by the very end of the series 100 percent 100 percent. okay yeah 100 percent. and i'm willing to be completely wrong but 100%. i actually haven't read the very last book or two so i don't know for sure but like yeah. you know I, I have some thoughts, so, but I won't share because I don't want to spoil things. Yeah, um, I like, uh, granted, I like the idea of them having their individual stories being separate and everything. It just mm -hmm. feels like if anything's faded in the story, that feels very strongly faded. But again, uh, the story has an interesting look at fate, right? The idea of the pattern and the wheel weaves and it's just everything is meant to be how it's going to be. And then it sends and then I guess it like corrects itself throughout the different cycles or something like that is what I'm picking up from loyal who's like one of my favorite characters right yeah so he was kind of new he had just been introduced at the end of the third or of the first book um but we saw a bit of him in the show so maybe he's a little more familiar from that but we're getting a little more of him here um continues to be cool i agree he's got he to me he still has tree beard vibes going on um although he's not you know an int or whatever but kind of a similar but um i wanted to ask you about a, a particular thing so rand early on starts hearing this like phantom laugh and he starts feeling like he's being watched mm -hmm. and he starts being paranoid. And then 
we get a, there's so much interiority in Robert Jordan's writing. That's something I was like definitely noticing in this book. Um, and I think it's a strength of the writing, but also some people probably bump up against it because there's so much of it. And I think it adds a lot of length. You get a lot of characters ruminating. You get a lot of characters thinking about what's happened to them so far, what their current like anxieties are, what they're wrestling with. And all of those like intricate thought patterns get, get cycled through with every chapter and they change a little bit over time. And we see like where they're at mentally throughout the fact that he does this sets up the ability for him to have Rand start having this thing where there's like another voice in his head. Who's saying, saying things to him. And it's like, yeah. I don't know if it's like, it's like his bad conscience or what, but it's like, Oh no, you actually do want this or like, yeah, give in to the Satan and, <laughs> um, or laughing at him and like, like, uh, challenging things that he says about himself. Yeah. Um, what what are your thoughts on on that interaction and what might be going on with him? Yeah, I mean, with my knowledge of fantasy stories, if if you're you know, there's a chance that it's his interior sort of evil self saying these things, but at, at the same time, like a whisper on the wind or something like that could could uh, be some some other form of communication. And I think like we've already shown so how like much, an outside force maybe. Well, we've already that? shown how, how the the taint right. We've talked about mm -hmm. this before. Man's side of the magic has been tainted, and I'm starting to get more of that just through the lore of of yeah. what they've talked about. It's like I think Louis Theron Telem. What's his name? Louis Theron Telemon. Yeah. Telemon. Yeah something happened he like almost gave into it or something something caused him to be the kin slayer now and so like he i think he possibly or or even before him evil always had like a certain pull and it was like wanting you to to use it and we've already we've heard from the other side the women's side of it they've said like if you use too much of it you could kill yourself if you you know right. you, you, that kind of that stuff. is so a I, risk yeah you can burn yourself out i assume that there's a risk on the male side as well and they're sure they've they've you know overused it well, the, and this taint like dri it drives men mad is what we've yeah. been told and so yeah. now we know rand has a connection to it and i think that that it's tempting him right it wants him to use it i think it has to do with the the magics tempting him and i think like obviously the evil overlord evil one the darkness is like kind of somehow involved in manipulating that pushing and pulling him to, to try to get him to use it so that ways. could be like balzaman himself like talking through in, in his mind and and it, is balzaman one of the forsaken is, or is Balzaman the actual the Balzaman is the dark entity? one. Oh, he is. Okay. Yeah. He, so, yeah, that's, we, that's he keeps getting dreams. One. Obviously the dream sequences, you can't take those with a grain of salt. You're like that, that probably yeah. is happening. He's getting, he, he ended up with a burn on his hand. Yeah. That's like a physical representation of that interaction. So I think that like the, the evil entity is using the tainted magic from the men to try to pull him in and, and they, they've said as much they've said we want you to work for the dark side instead of you know becoming the dragon and that kind of yeah. stuff now there is like a moment in that opening where the character because we're in a certain character's point of view when it's never revealed who he is mm -hmm. um but he is like looking around and like kind of like guessing at who people are and then when balzaman comes in um he's very surprised he's like Really? He's here in human form to talk to us? Yeah. And he's just like standing here with us? Like, I did not expect this. Um, and so he he is like some doubts, but then it seems like by the end of it, he's like, oh, okay, yeah, this is my marching order from Balzaman. So, you know, I, I, it is it is interesting of like the, the shifting identities and like who is who and, and you know, is, is, um, is everybody who they're purporting to be? 
they they keep giving us Paddock Fane's point of view as well. Something happened with him, and this is the the interesting thing. I talked about this way back in book one. I like how when they went to Shadar Logoth, mm-hmm. yeah, when they went there, there was evil entities that didn't seem like they were the same as the evil entity that's the rival of Luce there in Telamon and, and mm-hmm. Rand and that kind of stuff. So there's other evil entities, and it seems like they have different motivations. I think that there's some of that going on as well, because Paddock Fane, like, he wants the, the, the knife. Pat and Fane, yeah. he wants the the dagger just like Matt does, and he's like keeps pursuing the dagger and feels better when he has the dagger. So they both have like that connection to whatever that evil is as well. It seems totally. And then this whole breakout sequence is actually pretty brutal. Like there's like decapitated guards, and they're like writing in blood on the walls, and we get this dark prophecy. It was like an important moment where it's like a prophecy from the the evil side, and they're like we don't hear these a lot but they actually tend to come true as well so we should pay attention to them so yeah i thought this whole part was pretty exciting and then yeah i guess we kind of got this in the show but it was a little different they kind of had it happen at the same time as what was happening at the eye of the world Mm -hmm. um so it's got a little jumbled there at the end and i think that's part of it is they were shoving like this whole start of this book into that but let's move on in the plot Seeking to recover the horn, Ingtar Shinawa, a brave Shaniran warrior, leads a small group including Rand, Matt, Perrin, Loyal, Varen Mathwin, and about 20 Shinarans after the Thieves, a band of Shadow Spawn and Dark Friends. To track them, they enlist Huron, a middle-aged Shinaran with the strange ability to smell things that other people can't, such as the ability to smell where there has been a battle, even if there is no trace of it. Using this sniffing ability, Huron is able to follow the scent of their quarry across the land. However, it is not long before Rand, Loyal, and Huron are accidentally separated from the party and transported to another world via a portal stone that they unknowingly slept beside and somehow activated. In the other world, Rand meets Balzaman and has a heron branded onto his palm in a fight. It's kind of a dream. Later, having determined that the portal stone transported them to the parallel world, that essentially is the same, but with a different timeline, they eventually find another portal stone with the help of Selene, a mysterious woman dressed in white whom they meet there. So we leave and we begin the hunt. Rand is with this group. Our three main dudes are back together. Um, and they're with this Inktar who we saw fight fight off a Mirdral in the fight. So he seems pretty badass. Yeah. Like one-on-one after the Mirdral killed like seven other people or something. I want to talk about Perrin too because we have yeah. he's like one of the characters we haven't and, much, yeah. and he was a favorite of mine from the previous book and I like the power system and I'm I'm liking it still just as much I'm like man if there's a power that I want so far yeah. from this world I want wolf buddies dude I wolf, want like, the wolf stuff's cool right like he's yeah. able to reach out to them with his mind and he can like, send them images and and they have a name he's young bull he's like he already has his own name and stuff and yeah because he like killed a couple dudes I'm super invested in Perrin's story and I and like I want more of it going forward. Yeah, um, and this well, this is the mechanic. You're in, that I was, you're in, you're in for a treat. <laughs> yeah, I've heard there's. Uh, He's one 12, of the main characters. <laughs> Twelve other books. Yeah. <laughs> so this is that other mechanic that I said. You know, typically I wouldn't think that a fantasy story would introduce like a multiverse until mm. like an eighth, ninth, oh, okay. tenth book. That's what you're talking because about. Because yeah. we we start. We, he falls asleep on this like portal stone. Yeah. And we think that maybe he used his powers or something, something happened and they transported into an alternate version of the world. And it said that the wheel weaves alternate versions all over the place yeah. of possible. And this in this version, the uh, what are the the uh, Trollocs won the Trolloc War. Yeah. And so they took down Arthur Hawk Hawkwing. Wing. Yeah. Hawkwing. Yeah. Uh, they took it. They, they ended up defeating him. 
which is completely opposite to, to the world they're from. It's like paled out. Everything's pale. It's it's very cool. There's like no people, like basically empty. It's, you know, and there's not even very many Trollocs. And they kind of hint that like, well, maybe after they killed all the humans, they started killing each other because that's what Trollocs do. And that just feels like it can spin off so rapidly. But it is cool because he kind of sectioned it off as like, you need these specific devices that the that are like, I think, more ancient than the magic of the Aes Sedai. Yeah, the Aes Sedai. Like portal stones. And yeah. so, like, that's cool that... And these like, are that, somehow somehow connected to, like, the Waygates or similar yeah. to the Waygates. I think the Aes Sedai, they said the Aes Sedai used that technology or that, that magic system to then create the ways mm-hmm. um, in some way. I think it's cool. I think it's also, like, can be a bear to handle that in your, in your fantasy story because you're like, well, now somebody can pop through portals and go to alternate dimensions and bring people back from this or that. And I'm like... That can get kind of messy, but I, I trust that, every, you know, I hear great things about this story. So I'm assuming he handles it well. I just was surprised to see that in the second book. Uh, but and it's very unexpected. Like it took me on a really fun journey. I didn't think I was going to get out of this great hunt that I thought was just going to be like trekking through forests and fields to yeah. find these people. Even massive fans of the series, I think, will have criticism of certain parts and like things that go on too long and like, you know, certain books that maybe aren't as good as others and so I, I don't think it's like this is regarded as a perfect series, yeah. even if even if people do love it. Um, so, yeah, there could be particular particular spots where it's like, yeah, maybe maybe this got a little too much or it got into the weeds over here. Um, and, you know, I think looking at areas that could be problematic, I think is worth worth looking at like, oh, that could end up becoming kind of a distraction. And when I say like the I think I've just there's enough fans of this book series to to know that, like, it's worth reading. That's that's yeah, really how I feel totally. about it. So, yeah, we have Varen here who is actually sent to come join the other group because well, she says she Egwene, well, Egwene has a dream mm-hmm. about Rand being in trouble. And it seems like she got sent after that dream, right? Like okay. was was conveyed to her in some way. I think it happens yeah. in between the chapters, so we're not really clear. Like you said, that's what she says. There's some talk about maybe Egwene's something called a dreamer. So she 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 wants to find Moraine, and she Moraine like they're getting on a ship, and they're heading towards the what's the Isodai the White Tower Tarvalon Tarvalon. So they're heading there, and which is really cool. I'm ex- Tarvalon. I'm, I'm excited to see them in a magic school as well. Yeah. Like that, We've that's already seen fun... Tarvalon in the show, by the way. Yeah. Um, but I mean, like, I, I'm excited to see them get trained in a magical school. Like, that. that's fun for a fantasy story as well. They have a cool... Like, I'm invested in their story just as much as I'm invested in... We're getting... We're starting fun. to get a little bit of that already, right? Like, some lessons. Yeah. Uh, Suen, like, shows up and, like, gives uh, Nynaeve and Egwene, like, a, like a direct lesson. And we hear talk that, like, Nynaeve is going to be able to possibly enter as an accepted, which is, like, a level above novice, just because she's, like, older and so powerful already. Yeah, pretty yeah. cool stuff, yeah. Interesting. She, she, I'm excited to see what, what spins out of that, because even in this, we get, then we get the uh, the seat, the uh, Emerlin seat comes and trains them at one point, and that's a whole fun exchange, because the powers, like, are so... They're not very defined yet, which I like is part of the fun of it is getting st- some of this shown, like what the power system can do. Yeah, she shows off some stuff that they could do, right? She can like use the air to lock someone in place, which I thought was awesome. Mm-hmm. She makes a sword out of like ice or something. Just yeah, like I thought that was also air or something like that. Yeah, yeah, it's like she uses air, I think, to like cool it, cool ice crystals into a sword or something. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. then what's awesome is she uses that on Nynaeve, and Nynaeve is all frustrated and immediately learns how to use it right back to her. Throws her against the wall at one yeah. point. 
cool to see her progressing so quickly and her potential is going to be insane i'm sure Eve doesn't do a whole lot here other than be kind of angsty <laughs> she's got this whole thing where like she, her and lon keep going off and having conversations and it's, they don't seem to be going well we're not really privy to exactly what's being discussed but they're they're she's like angry at him and i think he's basically been telling her that they like can't pursue this romance at the same time she's also very frustrated with how the Ace that I are treating her and not like respecting her as a wisdom. Instead, they're treating her like a novice essentially. Um, and then it does seem like they're, they're going to compromise a little bit with this whole accepted thing, but she is not one who much like Rand does not seem very open to people like telling her what to do. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> I think I've described her in the first book as like an older sister uh, kind of to the group. And she like is it, that's holding true. Like she definitely is like ready to jump in and fight for any of the any of her family, basically back from where they're from and everything. What's the field called? Something fields or Emmons Field. Emmons Field. Yeah, like, like sh they're very protective of each other. We've heard tell of, in the first book some about like the Manetherin people, right? Yeah, that's like the kingdom from before that they're yeah. like descended from. Right. So I, I can already see. And, and Lon's like about... giving him, like, Lon's like telling him stuff to say and like little symbols to show to be like, Manetherin is like here. Like gives him yeah. a little pin, I think. Or, and they or said that they're and... very stubborn and like yeah. that, that holds true for most of these people, most of these uh, our main characters. And then we're hearing lineage seems like it's going to become important, which is, you know, is another big fantasy thing. And we're hearing about the Hawkwing descendants that are possibly coming ashore or something like that is being said by oh yeah uh, some of the characters. So I'm like, you know, there's another battle going on outside of the hunt currently that we're not getting a ton of information on yet. So going over to the Dark One side, we have Patton Fane has has the horn and he has the dagger and he's on the run and they're chasing him. And at one point they get to a town where like people have all been killed and there's a mere draw that has been like nailed to a door. And they're like, yeah. how did, like what, what did this? And then like we get revealed in a subsequent chapter that it was Patton Fane who actually did it. Yeah. Uh, what are you, what are your thoughts on, on him now as a figure? I feel like the mere drawl are of the dark one and, and he's kind of working alongside them. So maybe these evil entities have some connection because I, I think of him as connected to the dagger uh, in right. some ways, but then he's also getting orders. Or yeah, he's, he's kind of, he's like kind of a wild card, right? Like, yeah, I guess it is because he's kind of being pulled in multiple directions, but yeah, he's kind of a wild card in that sense of like, he'll, he'll kill murder all if he needs to like, yeah, yeah, he doesn't care, but he also like commands them through fear and like, they're all afraid of him. So he's clearly got like power. He puts the dagger on top of the chest. At one point he ends up with the chest that has the horn in it. He puts mm -hmm. the dagger on top of the chest and he knows none of the Trollocs and none of the, none of the evil, uh, dark friends are going to come up and, and touch it because they saw him use it in some yeah. way. Use they're the all afraid of, it. of that, of that power from Shadow Logoth. Yeah. It's just like other ancient evil. So he's he's you know developing something that maybe Matt could at some point, but yeah, did we get his point of view? I, I like getting in the point yeah. of view of these evil characters too because like he you hear how like sadistic he is. He like loved slamming the hammer down to like pin that guy to the wall. Mm -hmm. This is a, another good point to talk about something that Jordan begins to do here and he continues to do later, and that's where he starts introducing all kinds of like other POVs. It's not just our main three here. It's not just Emmons Field folk. We get Pat and Fame. We get like. A Domon's point of view at one point like we get I still haven't figured out why yeah we've gotten a couple of from him and I can't figure out what he means to this I, I remember he was from the previous book but I I don't yeah. get what he's in he's this like a ship for. captain and he's like he's got he's getting like 
uh, they're trying to get him to transport dark friends, I think. Yeah. At, at one point. So he's trying to get, he's, they're trying to hire him to do stuff. Yeah. It's a little yeah. unclear. If an author is going to do a POV like that though, I assume this character is going to have some big import. So I just don't know why. Point. Yeah. I wanted to, to sing Jordan's praises a little bit here because I think this is very hard to do well. And I do think he does it well. Is it perfect all the time? No. Um, can you criticize some of the ways he writes women? I've heard many women do that. Um, yeah. However, I just think it's it's such a difficult thing to write from all these different perspectives and have them feel different enough to stand out. And I think he does it. And like, at least pretty well. And like, that's actually a, a big talent I think he he is showing off here. And I think a lot of new writers have read this and think that that's something that they should be doing. And this is where I think a lot of people struggle because they don't realize how hard it is to actually pull that off. Yeah, to have the voice be so different. I, I can't imagine that that's... It, even to have like a random side character who pops in, like our prologue is from the POV of some person we might never see again. Yeah. And like you can't have that character sound like any of the other previous characters you've written. Yeah, uh, and you got to so, quickly establish them. It's a, it's a challenge, uh, definitely, yeah. from a writing point of view. Speaking of the POVs, though, some of my favorite POVs are when we get Moiraine's POV because we're getting yeah. a lot of lore information. We're getting a lot of, like, the plan, the prophecies, the things that, like, I like to, you know, sink my teeth into. And then you get to get more invested in everybody's story along the way. I still, there is a, there's a little part of me from the first book that was like, is Moraine always going to have, or really the five characters, best interests at heart? And I'm mm. pretty certain at this point that she's, like, the Gandalf of the group and she goes away to do research to figure out, you know what I mean? Like there's a lot of like, you know, rhythmic things to like a Tolkien or something like that. Mm -hmm. And I did feel that throughout, which I kind of expected, but in a book two to have it be like, here's the setup. And then we're going to go on this like trek, this journey towards something is very reminiscent of running through the hills with Aragorn and Gimli and Legolas. Yeah. And then you get like your dagger feels very ring-like in some ways. And so yeah. I, I like, it's familiar, we talked a lot but about this with, with our eye of the world coverage before, but there's an obvious, and very heavy influence from Lord of the Rings, especially in these early books. And I think that does, yeah, that definitely carries over here. I, I guess I just wanted to note that it didn't like make, take a drastic step in a different direction yet, but I assume yeah. that it continues to, to be more different as it goes on. You know, something about these other worlds when they were um, traveling around in there, I kept thinking of the never-ending story was one that I that I went to. It's so crazy that you say that because yeah. the, the when they find this uh, woman, I forget her name right now, Le what's her name? Celine. Celine, she she seems so much like the the princess for some mm, reason in Neverending Story. To me. There's like a weird frog creature that she's like fighting off, and Rand has to white, shoot. It's like white sands and dust. Yeah, it's kind of surreal. What are you, what are your thoughts on her? That we brought her up. I think she might be in a secret Aes Sedai. I've said that already. Okay, he's um, asked her a couple times if she's Aes Sedai. She does not seem to like the, that question very much. Exactly. Well, there's one thing we know about her for sure. That's that she's very hot. <laughs> she is everyone's like just like mouth agape at all times. Yeah. Uh, what What's your thought on that and her level of hotness and how frequently it's described here? Clearly there to tempt everyone like she's not who she says she is. I don't know for sure that she's going to be magical, but like something's going on here. She's like convincing. She's trying to like convince Rand to take up the horn. Yeah. She's like, take the horn and whoever has the horn, I'm going to be it's going to be me and you like we're going to be together. And Rand's like, all right. And take he's starting to think necklace. of Egwene. He's like, oh, Egwene's going to be jealous of me. And she's flirtatious with him. Yeah. Uh, yeah, definitely seems to be like at first it's like treated like she's just very hot. But then like I do think as we continue to read, clearly there's some sort of 
influence beyond just physical attractiveness. I think that's that's coming. That's coming. From her. She also has access to crazy lore that like loyal doesn't know. And yeah. she she knows. I'm like this. This is this one going to be one of the situations where like they take the necklace off and they're like 200 years old. <laughs> they keep signaling white too. they're like white dress. She she turns away. She's she's not listening to Rand because she's frustrated with him because he keeps turning down. Like she tells him to throw away the dagger and she tells him to keep the horn and he doesn't want to yeah. do either of those things. Yeah. And she keeps getting frustrated and she turns away and it's her white cloak or her white, you know, dress flaps. And the only other character that signaled that was when he was going to sleep at one point, um, Egwene saw that vision that we talked about already in the visions. She saw that he was in danger and then there was like a character cloaked in white over, mm -hmm. over him. So I'm like, that's this character, I think at least. Yeah, so she's dreaming about this threat, particularly from Celine. Let me read this next section, and then we can kind of wrap up what happens in this first half. Rand is able to use one of these portal stones to return to their own world, albeit much farther ahead of the rest of the group, and even the Dark Friends and Shadow Spawn. Shortly afterward, they recover the horn and the dagger by sneaking into the enemy's camp, which they found simply by waiting for them to catch up. Ingtar's group had earlier been mystified and confused at the disappearance of Rand, and the other two, but they manage to continue tracking the Dark Friends. However, as Perrin pretends to be another sniffer like Huron, secretly he is using his wolf sense, his ability to talk to wolves, to ask nearby wolves which way the Dark Friends and Shadowspawn went. Egwene and Nynaeve leave Feldara at the same time as Ingtar's party, along with the Amarillin and Moraine Damodred. As they head for Tarvalon, they are visited by the Amarillin and other Aes Sedai who give them lessons. Okay, so that's kind of where we leave off here. There's also this moment here at the end, which is what I was kind of getting to, where they stop at an inn after getting the horn and everything. Mm -hmm. And they're like questioned by this other captain guy who doesn't believe at first that they are who they say, say they are. Um, and then Celine is like not liking being questioned. And then um, she leaves in the night and she's just like, I'll be I'll be ahead at the, you know, I'll she see leaves you at the, the next note. stop. Yeah. Yeah. And and they had set a guard watch and she just disappeared. She, no one, the guards yeah. never saw her leave or anything like that. So she's evil or magical. Something's going on here. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Uh, what did you think about Rand's ability to just like go into the camp and take take the dagger and the horn? Yeah, pretty wild. Uh, I did not think they would. I didn't think they'd get the horn back until the end of the book. Honestly, mm -hmm. I thought that was going to be the rest of the story is trying to track it down and. It's kind of nice that it's not going to be the rest of the book because it, now it could get be taken again. Which, but again, at some point it starts to feel repetitive. Changing hands, so at least. I don't know bit, how yeah. often that's going to happen throughout. Totally expected her to run off with it when she was dis when she was gone. I was like, oh, she took the she took the horn for sure. Do we know for for sure that we that she hasn't? Have we seen? No, I don't think so. But Rand didn't yeah. say anything. Like they left. Yeah, you would think he, he would have noticed. Yeah. yeah, I'm actually not. I don't remember this part exactly, so I can't tell you. <laughs> um. Yeah, man, it's been fun to reread this part and like little bits that I do remember. A lot of stuff I didn't. We see Rand being kind of badass at multiple moments. Um, he's he shoots these uh, frog creatures in the eye and he shoots like five arrows and kills five of them. Yeah. Oh, um, that that brings up a great point. He has like a void thing. Yeah. That he's that that supposedly his father Tam he taught and it's like maybe this is like in the zone kind of thing and he's but like it seems magical. Well, he realizes that every time he goes to the void. Yeah. That like Sadin's there waiting for him. Like the energy right. is there. It's like tied. There two two things are seem kind of tied. And together. specifically the taint though too. Like he when he mm -hmm. goes to tap it, he can well, feel the taint too, as well. Yeah. And which it just it never stops being funny. Uh, yeah. <laughs> every every way you say it. Um, yeah. Can't uh, avoid the so taint. He, man. <laughs> he's using it, and then at some points it like shatters. 
into like glass shards and mm -hmm. so I, i'm trying to figure out still whether that's like something he developed because he's the dragon or if that's something he developed like outside of that whether he would have that yeah. ability no matter what because tam kind of taught it to him yeah it's it seems like a method of focus to me like it's like you, you go into the void and you're you, you're not touched by any emotions reminds mm -hmm. me a little bit of like stoicism as like a philosophy um and the idea that you like become hard as stone and like nothing can affect you and then from that place it seems like he has like a direct line to his magic um and then that magic itself is tainted so he has this debate about whether or not he should be using it at all. But then we get the implication of like when he's doing these great acts, like uh, killing these five creatures with five shots of the bow. There's some implication like maybe he was using the magic to assist the shots. Yeah, right? that's what I think. Yeah, it's gotten yeah. to that point. Like like maybe he didn't he wasn't able to maybe, tap maybe into even, that before. Maybe he wasn't even aware that he's doing it, but it's happening. But it set him up to now he can use that in addition to yeah. the powers. Yeah. But he's so, he's trying to resist it and he like he fights a bunch of the the shadow spawn with this Heron Mark blade and he's not a blade master himself, but he's been learning from Lon, which by the way, Lon not a blade master, yet he talks about how he could teach him to be one. I, I assume that means you're a, bl a secret blade master. <laughs> like I don't Isn't know. Isn't that interesting can, though? Yeah. But it's like he's not one, but it's like I can teach you to be one. And you're like, wait, if you could teach me to be one, shouldn't you be one? Well, Lon is definitely he's turned away all titles, all that kind of stuff. I, I'm mm. sure he's not interested in Flon that kind of thing anyway he's like i don't need a heron mark blade like i can do it with whatever blade i yeah I, I have. it makes you think there might be something there though right like there's some maybe there's some reason that we just haven't gotten yet. sure yeah oh yeah. and that that's also interesting too like we get some stories from uh when the day that moraine and lawn met and like there that was like in the last chapter there right before we stopped where they're talking about like she's asking him like does he regret it does he feel like it's uh there's a specific wording that's used that i'm not gonna be able to pull right now but uh, is it something that he regrets basically? And he keeps saying no. And then she, she's like, well, I gave your title over to <laughs> title is a funny way of putting it. But, uh, basically I gave your name over to a different person. If I die, you're going to be, you're going to be, uh, compelled to go to that other Aes Sedai figure. And he's like, not happy about that. That's the warder thing right. of, you know, the bond, like the bond will, will move. Mm -hmm. So yeah, she, she, he's not happy about that. He had no choice in the matter. And this is the first time that he was compelled by Moraine they talk about. Mm -hmm. And that relationship is very interesting to me because it's, it seems not like it's not romantic, but it's so close. We talked about this last in the first book as well. It's so close that it might as well be. And, yeah. and in some ways it's closer and uh, seeing how Nynaeve is he clearly like his want, but this is his duty and like how that's going to come about. And now, you know, I think the precedent has been set. Apparently she can like bequeath lawn to somebody if she were to die. Yeah. So that might happen to Nynaeve. Magically do so. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. Interesting theories. I can't, I'm not going to weigh in on any of that. Um, I'll just note here that they stop at an end called the nine rings, which I thought maybe was a reference to Lord of the Rings. Isn't it like the nine, nine rings given to the Lords of Men, Men. or something? Yeah, yeah, I think so. So I thought that might be a reference. Um, he says it's like connected to like one of his favorite stories growing up. And he's like, I guess it is still one of my favorites, um, which I thought was maybe a little little nod, nod towards Lord of the Must Rings. Be, right? Yeah, I guess this is where we're going to leave it for now. Um, we are going to watch the first four episodes of season two next week. 
So hopefully you stick around for that. If you like this episode, please let us know in the frame of a rating and review on whatever app you chose to listen on. Also make sure you connect with us on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Yeah, blue, blue sky now. And if you'd like to support this podcast in another way, we also have a Patreon, which we'd love to have your support on. It would greatly help us out if you wanted to do that. So definitely check that out if you're even curious about it. And that's patreon.com slash ink to film. And thank you to Sirius Beat for the use of our intro and outro music. It's the track The Chosen. All right. So all that's left to do is to get back into the show, which I'm so hopeful that they are able to sort of like write the course because they got a little bit off course, I think, there at the end of season one. So I'm going in optimistic um, and we'll see. We'll come back next week and we'll, we'll, we'll be honest with all of you and share our thoughts. I'm excited. Hopefully they take some steps in the right direction. I want this to be a massive fantasy show that we get season after season of. Yeah, so here's hoping. I mean, that would be cool. All right. Until next time. Keep adapting. <laughs>